The Weekly Hugh Demon. Full steam ahead. Episode 75. Have a short, fast-hitting program today. I think you're going to like it. Starting off with a discussion about Charles McKay's classic 1841 about the delusions in the popular mind. We're going to have a short lightning segment, and then we're going to conclude by extending our historical survey to give you the historical perspective. We're going to extend it to about 1530 to take into account the Reformation. I think you're going to enjoy the show. Hey, by the way, I have signed up to be a writer at medium.com. Fascinating new platform. Well, not new, but doing caught on popularity like in the past two years and just learned the ins and outs. So if you go to medium.com, Eric Chesky, something like that, you'll start seeing my works over there. Kind of getting kind of interesting. I'm still learning learn the medium, but pretty excited about it. Anyway, hope you enjoy the show. As always, thanks for listening. Over the years, I've dipped into Charles McKay's 1841 classic, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It recounts times in history when the general public was taken up in a craze, ranging from investment bubbles to witch hunts to manias about poisoning. I've been dipping into it now for obvious reasons. (laughs) Here's a great passage from it. Everything was believed to be poisoned. The waters of the wells the standing corn of the fields, and the fruit upon the trees. It was believed that all objects of touch were poisoned. The walls of the houses, the pavements of the streets, and the very handles of the doors, the populace were raised to a pitch of ungovernable fury. An epidemic frenzy was abroad which seemed to be as contagious as the plague. (laughs) And there McKay was talking about Milan in the 1630s. So again, the parallels are too obvious to warrant comment. But what does merit comment is the kerosene that the social media platforms throw on the fire by deplatforming commentators who dispute whether the shutdowns are a good thing, whether the fear of corona might be overblown, etc. Now, as I've emphasized, I honestly do not have a firm opinion on shutdowns and whether the COVID concerns are overblown. I am increasingly on the, of the mind that shutdowns are bad things, but I can't claim that I've been steadfast in that opinion, not by any stretch. <laughs> I've definitely waffled. Sometimes, like in the same 30 seconds. <laughs> and the same with concerns about how dangerous COVID is. I've, I waffle, and thing is, does anyone really know? And that's really the only opinion I have on it. No one's opinion is worth two cents. My opinion isn't worth two cents. Your opinion ain't worth two cents. The CDC's opinion, that might be worth three cents, but you can't trust them. We know they lie about face masks, so... You know, no one's opinion is worth two cents. But then you have Facebook and YouTube are apparently deplatforming people who deviate from the official opinion. And that ain't help matters. It just fuels speculation and resentment and conspiracy theories. But in Facebook and YouTube's defense, I would note it is an American tradition to deplatform people. And precisely the reason you can't trust American media, whether it's the New York Times or Google, whether it's 19th century or 20th century. The major news outlets always controlled the narrative, and the narrative was whatever they wanted it to be. 
back in, you know, 100 years ago, there were maybe six newspapers with a national reach. 50 years ago or 75 years ago, you had six newspapers and three national TV networks. Very small, close associated, like-minded group would determine what the U.S. population would be told. If, say, a William Randolph Hearst determined that X, Y, and Z would be told the American people, a man who believed A, B, and C would not be allowed a platform in a Hearst newspaper. It was that simple. What Google, Facebook, Twitter, what they're doing today is, at bottom, no different. They're controlled by a closely associated group of like-minded individuals who believe certain narratives. There is global warming. Transsexuality has merits. And now the importance of shutdowns. If you have a different opinion, they're not going to let you use their platform any more than William Randolph Hearst would have given you a column in his newspapers. Uh, now, does that mean you shouldn't be mad at Silicon Valley? No. You should be very mad, and you shouldn't trust them. But at least acknowledge that at bottom is no different than anything in America's media history. I'm not convinced that the press has ever been trustworthy. And quite frankly, I think much of our history is likewise skewed. I mean, they say newspapers are the first draft of history. Well, <laughs> the first draft sucked because it's informed by a narrative that wasn't fully accurate. Well, then the history is going to suck. At least it's going to be skewed because it got off to a bad start. Many liberal academics have helpfully shown over the years that there was and is a legitimate alternative narrative to the ones crammed down the American population's throat in high school textbooks. But what I really found bizarre is that these same left-lean academics and their successors, their, their ideological successors, are now on the side of suppressing alternative narratives today. <laughs> I mean, surely they can see that Justice William Randolph Hearst thought he was doing a good thing by promoting the only narrative he believed in, and thereby skewing the truth. They're doing the exact same thing now. Alright, let's do some lightning segments. Hey, real quick, in that last segment I read that passage from Charles McKay's 1841 book. I actually lifted that from Roger Kimball's excellent essay in the new Criterion called The Culture of Corona. It came out in this month's issue, so go check it out. I want to give credit where credit is due. In the beginning of the chapter on poisoning in that book, McKay is talking about a handsome young man named Robert Kerr who had caught the eye of King James I, who was, quote, suspected of being addicted to the most abominable of all offenses, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> Later in the same paragraph, he says Kerr would lend his cheek to the, quote, disgusting kisses of his royal master, unquote. And by the way, McKay wasn't some fundamentalist Christian either. Uh, he fathered a child out of wedlock, probably with one of his housekeepers. He mocked the Crusades. Things like he was like a late member of the Scottish Enlightenment. Hey, um, kind of big news. The Waywiser Press has published the collected poems of Robert Conquest. I was stunned to hear about it. I mean, I had no idea that Conquest wrote poetry, but I guess he's quite good at it. I went to Amazon to order it, but at 65 bucks, it seemed like his talent might be a bit too exquisite for my reach. <laughs> oh, and, and who is Robert Conquest? Well, he's the man. Plain and simple. 
when all the intelligentsia was swooning over the virtues of the Soviet Union, Robert Conquest was publishing books documenting the horrors of Lenin, Stalin, and all the rest. He wrote that Stalin killed over 10 million people, and the university professors scoffed at him. After the Soviet Union fell in 1991 and the archives were opened, even the most ardent Marxist, Reed, college professor, couldn't deny it anymore. When someone asked Conquest how he felt about being vindicated after years of being reviled, he replied, I told you so, you stupid mother effers. <laughs> By the way, that antidote might not appear to be anywhere on the internet. I ran two searches on the Google machine and nothing came up. Such is the reach of my erudition. <laughs> So, I've played Quiplash twice in the past four weeks. Three games, each setting. In each setting, the room was full. Eight people. I won five out of six games. And in the sixth game, I came in second. That's effectively a 41-1 record. Because every time you win a game with eight people, you win, you beat seven people. So I've been, yeah, I've been kind of insufferable about it, bragging. <laughs> I haven't downloaded on Spotify the Quiplash playlist so I can listen to that background music. Kind of keep me zoned in and mock the people I've beaten. I've been so obnoxious about it, the Sunshine School for the Development of Disabled has banned me permanently. Hey, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was going to try the Dry Bar app. Drybar is a clean comedy app. You can listen to comedians. Uh, it's very good. These comedians are freaking hilarious. And they are clean. And it's free. But you can definitely listen to this in front of your kids. Although I will note, it's more PG than G. There is some sex talk and stuff. But for the most part, the comedians are very clean. And they're freaking hilarious. Alright, I've decided to go a little bit past 1492 and extend this historical survey to around 1530 or so. I pointed out last week that 1492 brought us to the cusp of the Reformation. Well, 1517 brings us to the Reformation. And not only does this tie in nicely with the past 11 episodes by extending the survey by about 40 years, but also ties in nicely with a new feature I hope to launch soon. And I'm still working on what I'm going to call it. My working title is Freaks, but that won't be the title. That's just the label I'm working around for my own purposes. Okay, now wait, my Protestant listeners. Don't hit the stop button. By extending the historical survey into the Reformation and tying it into a new feature that I'm calling Freaks in my own mind, I'm not saying Protestants were or are freaks. <laughs> Far from it. But it must be admitted some Protestant sects were freakish, whether the Anabaptists in Munster. Speaking of which, if you have never listened to it, go to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History number 48 and listen to Prophets of Doom. It's outstanding. But anyway, whether it's the Anabaptists in Munster or those iconoclastic peasants who took craps in the holy water fonts of Catholic churches, the Reformation brought more freaks to the open than a hurricane bringing starfish to the beach. You know, to this day, I don't know how those iconoclasts did it. You know, 
taking a crap in the holy water fonts. I mean, it's gross, but if those are the finger holy water fonts on the wall that my church has, I mean, that would take an impressive degree of dexterity and aim. <laughs> I kind of like envision an ostrich defecating. <laughs> anyway, it can't be denied that the Protestant Reformation sparked some real freaks. But I want to just give a general overview to help with your general historical perspective on the timeline, but also giving you a perspective for the current Protestant landscape. First of all, you can argue that all Protestant denominations, besides Adventists and Pentecostals, can be traced back to four earlier branches of the Reformation. Lutheran, Reformed slash Calvinist, Baptist slash Anabaptist slash Radical, <laughs> then number four, Anglican. The Pentecostals, by the way, those didn't start until the early 1900s in Los Angeles. It's always kind of cracked me up. It's been a very successful denomination, but it is very young. It's younger than Mormonism. Anyway, back to the four main branches of Protestantism. Lutheranism, obviously started with Martin Luther, although we commonly refer to 1517 as the start of the Lutheran Church. That's not really accurate. There wasn't a separate Lutheran church until 1519, 1520, because at that point, Luther had been excommunicated and people were still following him and going to his church services. So at that point, you could say, okay, Lutheran church actually started. And then you had the Reformed branch, or it's called like the Calvinist branch, that started in Zurich, Switzerland by a guy named Huldrych Zwingli at about the same time. By 1522, the priest Zwingli was in open revolt against the Catholic Church and banging a wife, which is a common theme among reformers. It's like, <laughs> it's all about doctrine in the Bible and, uh, oh, damn, she's hot. <laughs> and Zwingli, it must be noted, he came to his doctrines separate from Luther. It was never like he was a follower of Luther and then branched off. They started separately. John Calvin would later pick up the Reformed banner in the 1530s. John Calvin was relatively late to the Reformed game. And so from this school of Zwingli and Calvin come today's Dutch Reformed, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Church of Christ. You can even pin the insufferable frickin' Puritans on the Reformed Calvinist branch. <laughs> and the other Protestant branch is the English Reformation started when Henry VIII saw Anne Boleyn and said, Damn, she's hot. <laughs> Maybe as hot as a sister Mary, who I've been banging for years. So, Henry VIII is hot for Anne Boleyn. He asked the Pope for an annulment from his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. It was denied. In order to bang Anne Boleyn, he decided to establish his own church with his own Pope leader in the form of the Bishop of Canterbury, who promptly annulled his marriage to Catherine, paving the way for the legalized sex with Anne Boleyn. From that branch of Protestantism, you have today's Anglicans and Episcopalians. You also have the Methodists and the Wesleyans. Uh, they are offshoots, but they're so different. It's You can't even call them part of the Anglican tradition, but they are offshoots of that one. And then you have the Radical Reformation, the Anabaptists and others. They were among the earliest and most enthusiastic reformers, eagerly listening to Luther and plowing forward. Depending on who you ask, they actually predate Zwingli and the Reformed branch of Protestantism. So anyway, from this branch, the radical branch, you have today's Mennonites and Amish. Hey, by the way, did you hear the one about the Amish prostitute? She banged ten men a night. <laughs> That's one of my favorite jokes of all time. 
but also included within the Radical Reformation quote-unquote label are the Radical Spiritualists and the Evangelical Rationalists. These are like the proto-modern-day liberals, socio-economically higher class, often well-educated, and going way beyond what Luther and Zwingli were proposing. First, just a quick note on the evangelical rationalists. They were basically proto-enlightenment thinkers in the vein of Voltaire and other rationalist snobs <laughs> from the 18th century. Their big thing was like all reason all the time. They denied the Trinity. They were Bible only. You know, Voltaire rejected the Bible too, but so they were Bible only, but only as they could discern it through human reason. Many of them rejected the divinity of Christ and again, rejected the Trinity. To be honest, I'm not sure it's properly called a religious movement, but I'm not really going to discuss it here. The thing that really interests me are the radical spiritualists. And but it's odd, you know, that the radical spiritualists, as, as well as uh, even a lot of the Anabaptists in general, were often excluded from discussions about the Reformation up to the 1960s. They were deemed to be such a small and extreme movement that no one took notice. But by the 1960s, historians are saying, no, was, these are pretty major movements. They had a lot of adherents. And so now they're usually included in discussions of the Reformation. But these radical spiritualists, they were, well, <laughs> really, really radical. They rejected almost every aspect of religion that might be external. That is, anything that is not part of the individual soul. All religious institutions, every church, Catholic, Lutheran, whatever, all ceremonial ritual, all clergy, no authority, no sacraments, I mean, even the reform position that said sacraments are just useful symbols, they rejected that. They said, no, sacraments are distractions. Get rid of them altogether. They even rejected the Bible. <laughs> so, you know, the Reformation started with the Sola Scriptura, Bible only. Well, within a few short years, the radical spiritualists were saying, no, no Bible. Nothing external to the soul. They only believe in the, quote, inner light, unquote, or the inner spirit, the direct revelation of God to the individual soul. The earliest example of this radical spiritualist movement would be the prophets of Zwickau, who taught this about themselves, that they had the inner light. But they just said, we do. There's three of us, and we're the prophets, and the rest of you slobs don't. We have it. <laughs> that was in 1522. Luther had no tolerance for the prophets of Zwickau. <laughs> He's like, you men like other men, get the frick out of here. But the radical spiritualist kind of took this one step further and said, no, everyone has this, or at least the selected believers have this, not just a handful of prophets. He goes, many people have this direct indwelling of the spirit where God lives in the soul, making you divine. And if you have this inner spirit, you're saved. If you don't, you aren't saved. And how do you get it? No one really knows. Historians have tried to figure it out, but they didn't really talk about it much. They didn't leave a whole lot of records. Which I guess makes sense, you know, any sort of articulation of this quote-unquote truth would be external to the soul. So you can't really write it down with doctrines or theology. And they didn't. So, I mean, I say that half-jokingly, but it's it's actually true. It's like, well, it's just, there's nothing to write down. Once you write down the, the paper and pen, that's external to the soul as well, and therefore it's irrelevant. But what's clear, though, is the radical spiritualists, they looked at, at the inner light like jazz musicians looked at rhythm. It's like, you either got it or you don't. <laughs> and if you got it, you know it. It was a very cocky position. So there's a couple of the radical spiritualists, if you want to look them up, you have uh, Casper Sphinxfeld, like Sphinxster, I guess, or Casper Sphinxfeld. 
He was Catholic. He followed Luther to 1525. Then he broke away, rejected baptism, all former church structures, and wandered throughout Germany preaching, leaving behind followers. You had a guy named Sebastian Frank, Catholic priest, became a humanist, became a Lutheran, then adopted the religion of the inner spirit in 1528 and became a wandering preacher. And then he had the fascinating Thomas Munster, a Catholic priest, became a Lutheran, broke with Luther in 1521 to become an adherent of the religion of the inner light. He may have been the earliest, he and the prophets of Zwickau, with his attitude, you know, the, the inner revelation. And Munster, he was like the, the, the big political activist. You, many of you may have heard his name before. He was the one who started the, the Peasants' War that the authorities absolutely crushed in 1525 and Munster was killed in it. But what's interesting about this is you see the Reformation getting more and more subjective right out of the box. So Catholics had the Bible, the Pope, theologians, councils, etc., etc. So all sorts of authorities that you kind of put into a box and shook it up and <laughs> gave you the doctrines. And you, knew what to, you knew what to believe. Then Luther and Zwingli come along and say, Bible only, as interpreted by each individual. Now again, I don't think that's quite accurate. Historians say that. I think it's pretty clear that Luther and Zwingli didn't think this any individual could interpret the Bible. <laughs> Luther thought, I can interpret the Bible, I'll tell you what it says. Not that Bible study is not profitable for every person, Catholic, Lutheran, whatever. But I'm not sure they really fully supported Bible only as interpreted by individuals. I think they still thought someone, in particular Zwingli and Luther, should be interpreting it for them. But there could be no doubt about it that it was a big break and gave far more credence to individual interpretation of the Bible, which the Catholic Church did not give any credence to at all. The Catholic Church would have said and does say that the Bible is profitable for individual believers to read and ponder and meditate upon, but when it comes to the definitive interpretations of it, whatever, that's going to rest with the Catholic Church. Anyway, so after Luther and Zwingli and the Protestants saying, hey, individuals can interpret the Bible for themselves, you go to the inner light, you know, the radical spiritualists saying, our inner light is the sole standard of religious authority. I mean, within less than five years, in 1519 to 1524, you get hardcore radical changes, where even the inner light, where they're rejecting the Bible itself as being external to the soul. And again, the overall trend is more and more subjectivity. And then this trend would continue into the modern era, in the fiercely subjectivist philosophy of Descartes, and into postmodernism with Derrida's deconstructionism, which we talked about, words have no truth in them, and because we communicate by words, we can't communicate truth, and therefore anything anyone knows strictly wells up within himself. I guess it's kind of like a, a materialistic version of the inner spirit. <laughs> and then you have Michel Foucault, who's radical cultural histories, denied any sort of objective truth. Every culture's truths are mere societal constructs. So you see this starting, just this radical subjectivity, just gaining full speed, going from zero to sixty in the very early stages of the Reformation. All right, that's it for this week. If you get a chance, please go to Apple and hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. It helps enormously with the search engine results. So if you could do that for me, I'd really appreciate it. Tell your friends and family, go subscribe to the Twitter account, like the Facebook page, whatever you can do, I appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening.